Father God, you alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord, help us not to forget that, that our lives are good because you are good, that our lives are blessed because you give blessings. Lord, help us to remember that you are the reason that we worship. You are the reason that we sing. You're the worship we, reason we gather together and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. Go ahead and have a seat this morning, folks. So I'm going to start off this morning with a quote. I've got it on the slide for you. You've heard this quote several times throughout this series. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is written by a theologian, A.W. Tozer, and it is a true statement. Over the course of the last 16 weeks, I've quoted that verse to you multiple times. And the reason why is because we have to have a right view about who God is. Not as we want him to be, not as we hope him to be, but as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, it is much easier for us to create a God in our own image than it is to worship God as he has revealed himself to be. As I was studying for this last sermon in the series, something piqued my interest. I was reading and a theologian said this. He said, most theology today has lost its emphasis on God and is really anthropology or the study of man. The focus for most theology and most people who attend church is not who God is, but what God can do for me. That's the focus, and that's an improper focus. Many believers have come to the conclusion that, that man is the center of the universe and that God owes us an explanation for everything, that God exists to meet our needs. The, the gospel message is not about what God has done, but what God does for me, that everything that God does is for our good as we understand our good to be. We read the Bible and what we try to do is we try to insert ourselves into the pages of scripture. Every story, every event, every page, we try to shoehorn ourselves in to the center, making humanity the center of God's word rather than God himself. And I can tell you that this type of scripture reading, this type of understanding of the scriptures is not the way that it was intended to be. God did not choose to reveal himself to us in the scriptures so that we can make everything about us. Rather, he revealed himself so that we can know him and his story. We have to remember that though we are beneficiaries of God's story, that we, we have received the gift of salvation, that we have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb, the entirety of what God has done in all of history the entirety of what God continues to do is for one purpose and one purpose alone for one reason and one reason alone. And the reason that God does anything is for his own glory. Romans eleven thirty six says this for from him and through him and to him are all things, not some things, not many things, but all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We should be ecstatic that we get to participate in this glory. That we are recipients of this glory. That instead, But instead of doing that, instead of celebrating that we have received God's grace, we try to make us the story rather than part of the story. 
we try to hijack his glory and make it all about us. And that's what we do when we don't have a right view about who God is. That's what we do when following Jesus isn't the purpose for our existence, but simply an add-on or an accessory. This type of thinking, whether intentional or not, devalues who God is and what God has done. But when we have a right view of God, when we see him for as he truly is, the source and the substance and the meaning of everything in life and existence, everything else starts to make sense. You and I are not the center of the universe. You and I are not who make the world go round. You and I cannot find ultimate meaning and fulfillment in and of ourselves. So if we stop ourselves and we start looking at just ourselves rather than looking at God, we end up living shallow, empty, and unfulfilled lives. Now, what I don't want you to hear when I say this is that this means that you're unimportant or not valuable because the scriptures do point out that the reality that each human is made in God's image. Each human is valuable. You are loved. You are important to God. You're just not the center of everything. God died. Jesus died for your sins, showing you how much he loves you and values you, but you are not the center of the universe. You are not the point in the purpose of everything. God's glory is ultimately the salvation that you have received. The, the grace that you have received from God is to do one thing. And that's to bring glory to God. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verses one through 11. I even highlighted some of these so we can understand in him. We have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Why does God save sinners? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus rise again? Why does the Holy Spirit seal believers to the praise of his glory? Knowing this helps us to recognize the gospel message is for us, but it isn't about us. It helps us to see that salvation is for us, but it's not about us. Everything that God has done, everything that God currently does, and everything God will do is for his glory alone. And to our ears, that may sound selfish. It may sound self-serving, like, God, why is everything for you and you alone? But we need to remember that God's glory is always, every single time, for the greatest good. Meaning that if God is doing everything for his glory, then it is done for the good of all creation. And we have to shift our minds to this truth so that it permeates and radiates from the scriptures that when this does, when God does what he does, it takes us from being the center of the universe and placing him in his rightful place. That God is the place and purpose and the goal of everything. It forces us to have a renewed perspective and a proper perspective of who we are and who God is. And living in light of this truth will shift the way that you live your life. Knowing that all God has done in our lives 
will force us to worship him through the praise of his glory. So I've been throwing around this word glory quite around quite a bit this morning. And you may be asking, what is the glory of God? Well, before we get there, I need, we need to understand the word glory can have different meanings throughout scripture. Just like, you know, we have several words that mean different things. So let's not get too lost in the sauce, but here's, here's what glory is like, like many words in other languages, because glory that we read in the scriptures is not English, right? Uh, it's translated to English, but it can be used to revert for different aspects of who God is, right? It can be God's presence or his manifestation to his people, often in visible forms. It can also be talked about, about the greatness of God, the glory of God as the greatness of God. It can also be God's goal for all creation. So to simplify just a real simple uh, understanding of what God's glory is, is that God's glory is about God's presence, his person, and his purpose. God's glory is about his presence, his person, and his purpose. And we're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to go to the Lord one more time for prayer. And then we will ask him to illuminate his word for us. Father God, we just want to pray for you, pray to you this morning, Lord, asking you to illuminate your scriptures, to open our hearts and our minds to see how beautiful and glorious you are. Lord, that everything that you do, everything that you have done and everything that you will do is for one distinct purpose. And that is to be glorified. And I pray that we would wrap our minds around that that we are not the purpose and end goal of everything, but you are. I pray that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would open closed minds, and that you would draw us in, draw us near to you so that we can see how beautiful you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we need to do when we, we think about the word glory is understand uh, the word glory in its proper context, right? As the Bible describes God's glory. And we know that the, the Bible isn't written in English, so we need to kind of use the original languages. So we're going to have a little Greek and Hebrew, just a little bit, okay, this morning, um, uh, so that we can understand what God's glory is all about. In the Old Testament, there is a word for glory, and that word is going to be on your screen. It's kabod, K-A-B-O-D. You got it, Levi? There we go. And what kabod means is heaviness, importance, or weight. It refers to one's stature. Kabod would be used to talk about somebody's significance or their heaviness or their weight. They're kind of like gravitational pull, how important they are. Okay. In ancient times, the greatness of a man was determined by the weight of his assets. And so the more important or influential or powerful or prosperous you were, the more kabod you had. And guess what? Just a sneak peek. There's no one who has more kabod than God himself. There's no one who is heavier or weightier than God himself. Now, the Greek word used for glory in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word doxa, which means praise or honor. This is where we get our word doxology from, right? That the word doxology means to praise the Lord. And when used in relation to God, doxa means that God deserves the praise of his creation. And with all of that, I think a good definition for God's glory is this, that God's glory is a recognition that God is worthy of honor and praise because of his person, his presence, and his purpose in all creation. I'll read that one more time if you're taking notes. God's glory is a recognition that God is worthy of honor and praise because of his person, his presence, and his purpose in all his creation. God's worth, his value, his weightiness is infinite. There's no one that even comes close to comparing. 
That is why God deserves the worship and the praise of all creation. The glory of God encompasses his divine perfection, his attributes, his essence. God is glorious in all that he does, in all that he is. Now you may be wondering why I saved this this specific sermon of God's glory for the end of the series. And here's the thing, originally, if you would have asked me this even two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I couldn't have told you. But now I can say that glory is the sum total of all of God's attributes. I don't even think that calling glory an attribute of God is really the right framework. God's glory is the sum total of everything that he is, everything that he does, and everything that he is going to do. Here's what I mean. If we wanted to describe God in one word, the best word that we could use for it is glory. The first Christian martyr, his name was Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 2, called God the God of glory. And later as he was dying in Acts 7.55, we read this. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed in it, into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. God is the gl- God of glory. Now, throughout scriptures, God's glory is demonstrated in many ways. And I'm going to try to take some, a look at some of those ways this morning um, so that we can get kind of an, a robust way of understanding God's glory. First, I want us to look at how God's, God manifests his glory in the scriptures. So when we read about God's glory in the Old Testament, one of the ways that we re- understand that is through his presence with his people, right? Remember that all, God's do- all God does is for his own name and his own renown. And we see this in his actions throughout redemptive history. As we read from the beginning of Genesis until the end of Revelation, we see that God is in control of and demonstrating his power over all of creation. The history of God saving his people is what we call redemptive history. After God leads Israel out of Egypt, God leads them in a glorious way. We read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on the way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. This is a glory, a glorious picture of God's manifested power, which itself reveals God's glory that he's covering and protecting his people by day, giving them shade. And by night, he's warming them with the heat from the pillar of fire. He's leading and protecting them. Then when the Israel, Israelites leave Egypt and they're being pursued by Pharaoh, God demonstrates once again his glory and power by splitting the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, verses 21 through 23, we see this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord, the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea after them. And then they get crushed by the winds or by the sea. The Israelites crossed on dry land and the Egyptians met their end all at the power of the hand of the Lord. And Moses, as he's reflecting upon what God just did for the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15, verse six, he says this, Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. God's glory is demonstrated to the Israelites through his power and through his protection. 
They have seen firsthand what God is and who God is and what God can do. But there's always more to the Lord than we can think or hope or even ask. You see, the leader of the Israelites at this time was a man named Moses who had a close encounter with God in the middle of a desert with a burning bush. If you don't know that story, Exodus chapter 3. He communed with God in the wilderness. He saw firsthand the power and the might of God. But these were all simple, simply just glances at the glory of God. They were firsthand experiences, but guess what? He wasn't done there. Moses wanted more. He wanted to see more of God's glory. So Moses begs for the Lord to show him his glory in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, which we read earlier. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. This is an interesting and telling thing for us today. Of all that you have seen God do in your life and in the life of others, of all the works of creation, there's always more to his glory. The depths and the riches of God's glory can never be fully explored on this side of heaven. And one day when we stand before him in the fullness of his glory, we can see how beautiful he actually is. I want us to take some time and look at Exodus chapter 33 for just a moment to talk about God's manifested presence in Moses's life. So I'm going to read what we read earlier, but I want us to think about this in relation to God's glory. So in verse 18, it says this, then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He, that being the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name, the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on this rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Moses here again is begging to see God's glory and God responds with allowing him to see it. But what do we see here about God's glory? We see first that it is his goodness His goodness is where his glory is. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. God's goodness is equated with his glory. Part of God's glorious nature is his moral perfection and purity. This can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Why? Because we are morally impure creatures. But God is wholly perfect, wholly moral. So when God shows Moses just glimpses of his glory on the mountaintop, he sees the goodness of God the Lord, the purity of the Lord. And even though we don't recognize it all the time, we all have experienced God's goodness. The fact that you are alive and breathing this morning is God's goodness. The fact that we can enjoy food and fellowship and beauty is God's goodness. Everything in creation is God's goodness and therefore radiates his glory. Psalm 19 one says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, in addition to God's goodness, the Lord also says that he is going to proclaim his name. This is the fullness and the character of who God is. We've talked about this before, but the ancient people's, to, to them, the name wasn't just something people simply called you. It's who you are. God's divine name encompasses all of who he is, his nature, his character, his person. God in his goodness is going to proclaim the fullness of his nature, his character and person to Moses. This is no small thing. Knowing God's name means knowing who he is. 
And Moses is once again going to hear the name uh, and know the God of glory, the God that he serves. I also want you to see here that Moses makes this request to God, but God chooses and determines how he is going to make himself known to Moses. Moses comes wanting to see the Lord. Show me your glory. And the Lord sets the parameters and the boundaries on what that's going to look like, how it's going to happen. This goes to show us that no matter how much we try, we can't manipulate God to show us who he is, right? We can't make him into anything that we want him to be. Rather, we need to know who he is fully by how he has revealed himself. Part of, part of God's glory is his sovereignty over all things. He, he is king. He is the ruler, and he gets to determine how he reveals himself. And this isn't just for Moses. This is for all creation. God has chosen how he is going to reveal himself. He has chosen that he would reveal who he is through the scriptures. He has chosen the stories that would be included in the scriptures. He has chosen that those that would be included and excluded so that we would see him as he is and not as we want him to be. He has chosen to reveal himself in redemptive history. He has chosen it all. And the reality is we can only know God to the measure that he allows us to know him. Some believers will have a more intimate knowledge of God than others. Some will pursue him more, but each one of us is called to pursue him, knowing that he will reward those who seek after him. We should all be pursuing him, seeking after him, knowing and wanting to know him more. I say all that to say this, don't compare your walk with the Lord to someone else's. Rather, focus on earnestly seeking after him, and he will show you what he wants to show you, and I promise and I can assure you that he will show you exactly what you need to see. How can I make such a promise? Because God is good, and he knows exactly what each one of you needs. This next thing I want us to see is at the end of verse 19. He says this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. One of the overwhelming themes of all of scripture is that God is autonomous and he makes his own decisions. He is not coerced or manipulated. He does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. God's autonomy stands in stark contrast to the other gods of the Old Testament who are worshipped in the pagan nations. Those gods are dependent on people for their survival. You need those, he need the, those gods need those people to provide them food. And if you want to bargain with them, then you can bargain with them and they can be tricked and they can be manipulated and they can be coerced, but the Lord cannot be lorded over. He makes decisions on compassion, grace, and wrath the way that he sees fit. He alone has the authority and the autonomy and the power to do so. And you may want to push back on this, but here's what I want us to see. Who else would we want to have the decision-making in the hands of? Is there anybody you can think of that you want to make those decisions to have all that power? Who else is perfectly moral, fully knowledgeable, and worthy of power? Rest assured that God is not capricious or flippant in the choices that he makes. He knows what he's doing, and he's going to continue to do it rightly and perfectly. In addition, know that every choice, every decision that God makes is for the greatest good. And what is the greatest good? The greatest good is God's glory. And now back to this interaction between God and Moses. We see that God had to protect Moses in the fullness of his glory. God couldn't, Moses couldn't see God's face. Now we need to know that God's face refers to the fullness of who he is. 
And Moses can't see the fullness of who God is. And he says, why is that? Because sinful humanity can't see full divine glory without instantly dying. One theologian put it this way, finite flesh cannot look at an infinite God and live. This is the mercy of the Lord to restrict what Moses sees. So God allows Moses to see him, but not all of him. Even though Moses only catches a glimpse of God, it goes on to tell us in Exodus that Moses's faith shines from being just in the simple presence of God. Even though Moses only catches a glimpse of him, his faith shines. Just a glimpse of God's glory causes radical transformation. We don't need to know everything about God. We don't need to know everything about the scriptures to be transformed by God. We don't need to know all the theological terms. We don't need to know all the ins and outs of every biblical story. If we catch a glimpse of God, we will be transformed. Because God's glory changes people. God's glory changes our hearts, our minds, and our souls. And even though we won't know everything there is to ever know about God, we should cry out with Moses, show me your glory. We should never be complacent in our walk with God. We should always desire a deeper encounter with him, a deeper knowledge, a more profound relationship with the creator and our savior. Don't let the glimpses of God's glory stop you from requesting and searching for more of it. We should continually pray that God would show us his glory. If you have decisions to make in your life, pray, God, show me your glory. If you're going through a rough patch, like an illness or mourning a loved one, God, show me your glory. If you are on the mountaintop of life and everything seems to be going well, God, show me your glory. If you feel like your spiritual life is dry and sluggish, show me your glory. It doesn't matter what is happening in your life or in the world around us. You will be better if you see, know, and understand the beauty, grace, and goodness of the Lord. You will be comforted and changed if you cry out to God and to show you his glory. And let me tell you, this is a prayer. Show me your glory that the Lord loves to answer. Let me tell you how I know that he loves to answer that because he proves it in history. How does God prove that he loves to show his glory? He gave us Jesus, the fullness of God's glory. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three says this long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets in different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high in the person and the work of Jesus. We see God's glory on full display. Jesus walking in obedience to the father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. We can now walk in the redemption of God. And it's not based on anything that we do or anything that we've done. It's based solely on Jesus's work. God gets all the credit and he saves sinners because it brings him glory. There are many people here this morning who through the grace of the Lord are not the same as they were one, two, five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it glorifies God that these men and women are now beacons of light and love to the community around them. God has made 
much of when we are transformed by the power of God. And he gets credit for what has happened. He gets credit for our salvation. He gets credit for the glory that he has revealed to us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with the saints with the length and the width and the height and depth and of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And here's the thing through belief in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus sinners can be saved. Those who are enemies of God can become friends of God. Those who are rebels against God can now become daughters and sons of God. But we have to remember that the reason that God saves sinners is for his glory. He doesn't save us because of our own works. He saves us to pour out the riches of his grace. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, he's calling out to you today and he wants you to know that, that in him you can find redemption, that you can find love and joy and peace, that you can be made right with God and know the glory of God. And for those of us who have been saved, now that we have been transformed, now that we have been invited into the family of God, we need to respond to this salvation with love and with gratitude. And we respond to God's grace and glory in our lives. Remembering that our lives are no longer our own. That we were bought with a price. And that God expects us to live no longer for our own glory, but for his. We are to live our lives in a way that point others to Jesus. We are to live in a way that lets the world know that we are all about God's glory. If we have been saved, if we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, then our aim is to glorify God in all that we do. I just read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, and this talks about God saving grace for the glory of himself through his people. And I want to close this morning by looking at um, a section later than that in Ephesians in chapter 4, 1 through 6. This is what he says. So in response to God's salvation, in response to him receiving the glory, this is how we respond. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. When we give our lives to Jesus, when he saves us, our lives no longer belong to us. They belong to him. Our lives are to be transformed and we are to walk worthy of the calling that he has called us to. Living in peace and harmony, proclaiming the good news to those who are far from him. Worshiping him with everything that we do at home at work, in the community, 
No matter how we live our lives, we are to live it for the glory of God. This is how we respond to the grace that we have been given. And I want us to pray that we are concerned with, we are as concerned with God's glory as he is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for showing us your glory. Thank you for letting us in and calling us sons and daughters of the King. And I pray this morning, Lord, that if there's anybody here who hasn't given their life to you, I pray that they would submit to you, that they would acknowledge you, that they would see your goodness, that they would know your grace, Lord, that they would be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that as we close with this last song, Lord, that we would respond to you in the way that you have called us to respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.